All right, hey everyone, welcome to Dojo Talks. Uh, we got a great episode today. We're going to be discussing uh, coaching philosophy. And the way today's show is going to work is basically we'll first take a few minutes each to kind of lay out our personal philosophies and we might discuss stuff based on that. Um, and then we'll kind of go around and we'll either make somewhat of like a declarative statement about coaching, something we think about it, uh, about coaching, or we'll maybe ask a question and then the other two can give their appropriate uh, takes as well. Um, so it's going to be a, a cool show. Hopefully we get into some some good uh, discussion. And I guess let me ask Jesse first, because Jesse, you've been coaching okay. the longest, I presume. Um, and you've had the most time to think about your personal coaching philosophy. So how would you... He's calling you the boomer GM right <laughs> off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag boomer GM. <laughs> <laughs> So, I've been coaching since before you were born. I mean, that might be true. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, well, how would you lay it out? Um, yeah, okay. I'll just talk about it personally. I, I think uh, everyone has their own different approach to teaching. And um, that's one of the reasons I think this show is interesting. I just want to contrast maybe debate with you guys a little bit see how you feel about coaching um yeah i've been doing it my whole life and one first thing that i think is very true that i've only come to understand recently is that besides often being for money coaching is a selfish act in that by forcing yourself to explain concepts to people who might not get it you will be able to articulate them better for yourself. And so I think one of my takeaways from that is whatever level you are at, if you are trying to improve, having a student will help you just because then you'll be forced to explain how you see things in the position. Um, and that relates also to how I teach. I believe strongly that you have to go over your own games and articulate what was going on in the games uh, out loud. It could be, you know, I try to write it down. I always have my little trusty uh, notebook that I pull out. Um, there's different ways of doing it. You can write out variations. That's important. Writing out evaluations, but especially just talking about what you see in the position. That's at the heart, I think, of true chess improvement, where the, whether it's the opening, the middle game, or the end game, all, all phases of the game will be there when you go over your games. Um, and as a teacher, I find like I, um, most, most students don't adhere to it with the religiosity that I do most because it's too hard. Um, and I've also fallen off the wagon as a player myself. I have often failed in my quest to analyze all my games thoroughly, partly psychological reasons, partly time reasons. Um, but it's difficult. And my goal as a teacher is really to help that process. So for the most part, I am just going over students' games. And if people are kind of interested in that, a little microcosm of that is our latest dojo lessons, where we're putting these things out on YouTube. People are submitting their games and their annotations. And I'm showing both the annotations and then my reactions to them. And the annotations, I think, are critical. And more important than whatever I say is them being forced to write down what they see in the position. Uh, that, I think, is the heart of it. Um, 
And we're going to get into other, like, you know, let's call it basic little details of the, what do you do and how do you do it? But that in general is my basic philosophy. So I'll leave it there. And we'll probably come back to it. Yeah. Actually, one thing I always wanted to ask you is like, how critical is the physical uh, writing of the process, like using pen and paper? If you had a really dedicated student who, you know, types their heart out, like, is that uh-huh. acceptable? Well, it's not even typing, it's with a pen. <laughs> I know, that's Somebody what I'm asking. Is, it, is that critical, the, the pen itself? Well, the thing about typing, right, is then you're in front of a screen. And I think it's really important to get away from the screen. You know, you're not in front of the screen when you play a real game. And you're just there by yourself. And you're there with your own thoughts. And, you know, that's all you've got. I, I think it's great to analyze with other people, for example. They, they can teach you a lot. But at the end of the day... You're not there with your computer. You're not there with your friend. You're there with yourself. And so you need to be able to write it out yourself with your, you know, with your mind. That's right. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess for you, yeah, the main thing is just like reviewing your games, which I'm sure we'll all mention is like a core tenet of like how to work with a student is just right. like instilling the importance of reviewing your games. Um, okay. Yeah, I guess we'll, we'll get back into it. Uh, David, do you want to, uh, do you want to ask something first or do you want to give us your, your view? Um, which, which order would you like us to go in? (laughs) Your choice. Give us Um, your philosophy, David. Let's go. Come on. Let's hear it. I'll give you guys mine. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm afraid to, to not do this the best since I haven't written it out precisely in advance of this. Um, there's a lot that goes into it, but um, here, here are some, some bullet points about my, my philosophy of chess teaching. Number one, um, the most important thing to me, the primary thing is to create a healthy relationship between my student and chess. That's the number one thing. That relationship there is like the primary thing that I'm trying to, you know, create, build, tend, and see flourish. So that um, that means, you know, my student may or may not improve or quickly or slowly or whatever, um, but they're going to have a positive feeling when they study or play chess. They're going to have a desire to study and play chess. They're going to be able to step away for it for whatever reason in their lives but always come back to it. They're not going to be somebody who quits broken or sad or hating it or anything like that. They're always going to um, feel good about the time they spent on their chest. That's the number one thing that I try to foster. I think the second most important thing after that is the teacher-student relationship. That's the most important thing after that, I think. And I think that really needs to include trust. So obviously I tell my students I'm not a super GM or a super computer. Uh, you know, my ideas about chess could be wrong. My ideas about teaching could be wrong. But if we're going to do lessons, they're going to have to trust what I'm telling them to some extent um, and, and, and try to follow what I'm telling them to do. And if there are things they disagree about, we can argue about it. And there's room for that. But there's no point in having lessons, if, for example, I tell them you need to analyze one of your games every week, and then every week they don't analyze one of their games, and instead they 
do puzzle rush 50 times and then the next week and the next week. And they just don't believe what I'm telling them about how to improve, for example. So those two things are like super important. Um, and then I also think that every chess teacher should provide their student with a profile and a study plan, their strengths, their weaknesses, and what to spend their time on. So you're really trying to give them ideas about how to, about how to best spend their time uh, and giving them good, a good learning attitude and good habits about learning, ideas of where to study. Um, and to achieve all of those things, it's basically necessary to prepare like crazy. So that's another um, point is that the chess teacher needs to prepare like crazy. The student also needs to be working on chess between lessons. Um, and most of a student's improvement is not going to come during their lessons. It's a very small part because it's a very small percentage of the hours they can spend on chess. So you're just giving them guidance and then they need to work like crazy and you need to work like crazy to give that proper guidance as well. Um, and then a last point is you have to care deeply about your students. It's the only way you're going to do the work that you need to do. And it's the only way you're going to have a really good teacher student relationship. So, you know, I'm not in love with my students' money when they pay me for their lessons. That's really not an important aspect of the lessons. It's very important that I care about my student and how they feel and how they think and how they develop. And uh, yeah, it's the student that you have to care about. All right. Yeah, that last point, I, I really agree with. I think you have to care, like, you really have to care about the results, like, almost as much or more than, than they do, I think, to have like a really, because then you're really getting into it. It's, um, well, it's like that thing. Some They say like, you should treat yourself the way you would take care of like a friend. So a lot mm -hmm. of times that's like, uh, yeah, like the coaching relationship to the student. It's like taking their improvement sometimes even more seriously than your own. Like you really want to give them the the best effort you can. Um, wow. Yeah. A lot of good stuff in there. <laughs> I think you're a great coach, David, <laughs> just based on that alone. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> um, how, I guess I'm curious how, like, uh, closely would you rate the importance of like analyzing your games? Like if Jesse puts it at like 11 out of 10, what would, what would your score be? I mean, I would say it's one of the activities without which you can't fundamentally improve, but I don't think it's the only one. So I think that if you only analyze your games, you're going to run into certain limits. But I think Jesse's also implying that you need to be continuing to play more games after you've, um, after you've studied them. Probably correct me if I'm wrong on that, Jesse, but I think you can't improve if you never play more games. So the two biggest pillars of improvement are playing games and studying your games that much. I would, I would say, and maybe Jesse would agree with me on that much. And then I think that it is productive to do one or two other things. Like for example, when you're studying your games, to me, one of the reasons you're studying them is you're finding like a particular like weakness or hole, and then you might want to improve at that thing that you found. Right. So if I analyze my games and I, find myself repeatedly drawing endgames with an extra pawn. Of course, I can try and figure out what moves would have won the game 
with that one extra pawn, either on my own or then checking in with my coach. But that may not be enough. To me, if that were my weakness, I would add another element. I would say, okay, well, now I'm going to practice specifically just playing endgames with an extra pawn again and again and again. I'm going to play both sides of them. So I see them from both sides. And so that's sort of what my endgame exercise is based on. It's similar to the training that we're doing in endgame sensei, which is very consistent with my training approach, both for myself and for my students. So, or I might find like a book that talks about that subject or a couple of videos on that subject, or like a collection of Magnus Carlson's like end games and like go through every example where he's up a pawn or something like that. Right. And, uh, so, so for me, sometimes what you find by analyzing your games points you to some other area where you can do study that's outside of just looking at the moves of that one game. Cool. So, okay, you said it's extremely important, fundamental, but not not the necessarily the most important thing. Or at least there are other things that are also fundamental. Maybe the most important, but I feel like partly it points you to other things that also need to be done. Right. Right. Uh, okay. Cool. Um. Well, I guess I guess I'll go. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, well, I guess, okay, there are a few things I wanted to say. Um, number one, I think coaching is very hard. <laughs> There's many different ways to do it. And I often feel like I get imposter syndrome when it comes to coaching because I, I really don't feel like I fundamentally have uh, the answers. I just have like kind of strong opinions about what I think works and what kind of worked for me in terms of like my own chess improvement. Um, but yeah, I just want to say that there's like many good coaches out there and they seem like they all have their different styles. And I'm sure there's tons of coaches that we've just like never heard of because they never wrote any books or like never did any kind of like published material. They're just like quietly like coaching and like improving like dozens of players uh, every single year that we just simply have never heard of. So I definitely right. don't want to... Um, I definitely don't I mean, want to like, like pretend like I have the truth. Yeah. Has, has Gregory Kaidenov ever published like a book or a video series? He did I mean, some like, videos he, for chess.com. that are very good. I think. Okay. He has. Okay. Cause <laughs> yeah. there's somebody who like we would know of, cause like we've been in contact. We know he's like an incredible teacher, but like, I haven't seen his public material. So there might be people who haven't heard of him, but. Yeah. I bet. I bet there's many who haven't um, though. Kaidenov, he's like. Yeah, he's definitely known as like a very good coach. Uh, some people say he's like just one of the best coaches in the U.S. Uh, period. Yeah, um, I think I know. I'm pretty sure uh, Greg Shahadi. Yeah, thinks really, really highly of him. Um, and uh, yeah, but the, like, so he's he's known, and I imagine there's tons of coaches in you know Europe and Asia um, that are just extremely unknown and probably have just like brilliant ideas that would be cool to um to discover anyways uh for me i've what i try to stick to is i think one of the most important things that a coach can do for their students is kind of like inspire them into really like being curious about the game i think it's kind of similar to what david was talking about like the relationship to the game um yeah i think it's at least the best coaches that i've seen and the ones that i'm really inspired by myself it feels like they they instill this kind of like love for the game 
um, with their students, either by showing them like classic games, or I was thinking earlier, you know, one of the best coaches uh, in the world, uh, Dvoretsky, who I, I feel like uh, I, I read his like autobiography and I just thought he had like an extremely interesting approach. One thing about him, I mean, he's worked with like dozens and dozens of top players is that I feel like he's always been a very good storyteller, like just based on his writing. Uh, a lot of his books have like these kind of like fun stories about tournaments. And then when I was reading them, just kind of trying to improve my own chess, like that just felt inspiring, just like hearing about like these players and what they were doing and thinking at the time and how they were on, on their way up and their, and their struggles and, and stuff like that. And so I can only imagine what he's like with his students. He's probably like extremely engaging and inspiring. And um, I feel like that, that might be one of the reasons why he got the success he did. So for me, it's all about kind of, I guess, one, like inspiration and motivation. And then number two, uh, really simplifying the task for the student. I mean, ultimately, I believe that it's like the majority of chess improvement comes from the player themselves. Uh, and I think it's all about the work that a player puts in themselves to improve. But I think the coach's role in that is to kind of simplify what the student needs to do, essentially like set a training plan um, or give them kind of like uh, an easy breakdown to like their strengths and weaknesses, like the profile uh, David was saying, and what they would need to do to improve uh, from there. So for me, I feel like that's always kind of felt at least one of the most helpful things that I could do as a coach is just be like, okay, study these positions, study this player, do these types of problems for the next month. And uh, I found that it makes it a lot easier for the student if they're number one motivated to kind of just go and do the work because it's just like clearly laid out for them. So, yeah, I guess I guess to sum it up, it would be motivation and um, designing the plan. So yeah, because tell tell us a little bit more about like what a plan would look like and what yeah what is if I'm a student under you, it sounds like it's I, I'm I'm imagining like a list of things. You give them a to do list. <laughs> like here you go, son. Here's the things you need to go out and do, or something like that. Is that's what it sounds like? Yeah, I mean, you know, you kind of, you definitely have to tailor it to the student. Uh, some students, uh, especially more of the adult ones, will just be like, I will do whatever you want. Just like, tell me what to do. And I really appreciate that approach. Um, other students, you know, like, it's important to keep the game fun for them. So I, I'm not just going to assign them to like read my great predecessors all day and, and stuff like that. But I'll mm -hmm. try to come up with something that um, makes it interesting for them. Although, Usually most people, you know, they just got, you just got to work on your calculation. <laughs> like, like I've never had a student, you know, that didn't need to improve their, so that's just like a very easy, like training assignment, like just do these problems or do like, you know, this chessable course that's like tactics uh, or mm -hmm. tactics based, mm -hmm. um, you know, like I think I had one student who, you know, just like really cared about his puzzle rush high score. So I was like, you know, just try to do like 10 puzzle rush runs a week and then do like some normal mm -hmm. tactics after that. So just something to just be like, here's what you do. Because I think a lot of people, they just, um, I mean, there's so much out there that you could be doing. There's so many different like training tools now and like videos and courses uh, that I'm sure, I mean, I, I get confused, like thinking about what to work on. So I'm sure that happens mm -hmm. for others as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
One kind of hilarious thing for, for me is like, obviously my coaching philosophy is very transparent and, and obvious, but on the, on the day-to-day, it, you know, I might, when I mean day-to-day, just my daily interactions with students, uh, honestly, it's a lot of it is trying to hinder them from consuming uh, empty carbs. You know, like I'll go and stalk them on the lead chest of the chest.com and be like, oh, you've been playing that bullet again. <laughs> <laughs> and I would see, I can see, you know, I, you could stalk people now. I could see that you've been doing the puzzle rush, you know, and I don't actually, I don't mind puzzle rush I, I, as much nearly as like the bullet, but I know that what happens is it's so easy for students, most students, the majority to fall into holes, whether it's watching like, uh, some empty videos or doing empty bullet games, stuff which will honestly hurt you more than it will help you. And as a teacher, you know, you need to be there to pull them back to a more rigorous uh, chess that's more honestly more interesting too. And they know it's more interesting. It just takes work. It's, it's you know, it's there's a burn there in the same way that if you were lifting easy weights versus hard weights or something like that, you know, it's just a more difficult process that you have to like pull them back. And if you want to, you know, infuse it with love in the David sense, the David Brucean love, sure, you can, you know, love for the game. Absolutely. And that has to be there uh, for them to progress anyway, you know. But anyways, I'm just trying to say, there is like, uh, that is a lot of my coaching is just pulling people back, you know? Yeah. That's a lot of me too. I mean, yeah. I had to tell people 10 times today, the same thing about stopping with their computer analysis. Like somebody played a game, Jesse, and right after this game that they lost, interesting game, I think Kosti over, overheard this moment too. Uh-huh. They come into chat and they say, man, I got to study that game and like learn something from it. And I was like, great. This guy's going places. And 10 seconds later, he's like, so apparently I'm supposed to this, this, this. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> 10 seconds later, you've been using a computer. He's like, yeah, like that's not analyzing your game. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, you know, David, I think actually it'd be a really interesting thing to talk about. I, I think that's super common. I mean, I think like most chess players that are playing online are doing that. Just like looking yeah. at the engine, like right after the game. I mean, it's basically been incorporated into the interface almost, right? It's like, it's like the chess dot com and lee chess interfaces are telling you mm-hmm. that that's what you are i think they do. they show you automatically like oh you missed this many wins and you made this yeah, they many give you mistakes. like a report when you finish your game yeah i think automatically yeah. as well maybe yeah but, so um, yeah that is kind of a problem i mean oh yeah um especially yeah i've seen like students start looking at the report like while they're like they're they like just started analyzing the game with the coach and then they're like yeah. looking at the analysis, like as they're <laughs> working with the coach. And that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, very, very troublesome. Um, yeah. Because, okay, I'm sure we agree on this point, like the human insight into a game is more valuable than uh, the computer insight. Yes. Um, but uh, I guess, the, so where I would disagree on this is that I do think that the engine can be extremely useful if used in the right Wait, so I wouldn't go as too far as to say, like, just don't use the engine ever. Um, number one, I mean, I think that's just like Im- impossible to mandate. I think it's just too tempting for people to want to know, like, what the computer thinks now that it's so available. But really, actually, I do think that, you know, I mean, the engine can help reveal 
a lot of things, especially when I was like um, going through games, you know, when I was younger and like analyzing games and something would happen in the game that I didn't fully understand or a really obvious move wasn't played or wasn't mentioned in the notes. And I would, you know, I would just drive myself crazy. Like, why wasn't this move played or why wasn't this mentioned? And the only way to kind of confirm or, you know, um, uh, disconfirm, what am I trying to say? Refute what the move you're looking at is to kind of check with the engine and then it can really illuminate. And it sometimes it turns out the move you're thinking about is a blunder because of some tactic you didn't notice. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, I should have seen that. Or maybe it confirms your idea as being fully sound and you're like, oh, okay, so I'm not crazy. <laughs> this was like a normal move in the, in the position. So I think it can be useful, but only like in very, very specific ways. So that, that to me is the danger. I mean, I understand that can be super satisfying psychologically. I understand that it's like driving you crazy, not knowing, but like in a chess game, you're also always in a state of not knowing, right? So might it not be better to just accept that you don't always know and be used to like not having the certain answer, but making your best answer. And at some point saying like, I think I've found a move that is a mistake in this book. You don't know for sure, but it's the same as like when you're playing a game, your opponent plays a move that you thought was wrong. You think about it seriously. You don't just pounce on it laughing gleefully. You think about it seriously and you're like, to my best estimation, after four minutes of my own reflection, I think this move is probably a mistake and I can do this. And I just have to move forward with that theory. So. Yeah. 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 Oh, go ahead, Jesse. Well, I was just going to say, I think a lot of people think of me as anti-computer, but I, I really want to stress the computer is a, a beautiful thing. And one of the things that's happened in my lifetime, I'm such a boomer GM. I grew up before the computer was strong. And um, the thing that happened really was that it kind of was like everyone now has a free coach. It's one of, it's like, by all means, it's a coach for me as well. And the only thing I, I try to stress is like, view it through your own eyes first, like go over the game with your own eyes and then only after look at it with a computer. The computer will tell you amazing things. It will truly tell you, and you can think of it as another coach. Um, absolutely. And of course you need to learn to work with it, but the same way you need to learn, learn to work with a coach as well. <laughs> you know, like every coach you work with will have their own presuppositions and ideas and um, limitations and as a student, you kind of have to gain a sense of what those are anyway, you know, just as with the computer. Yeah, I would say when you're playing a game, like by the end of the game, you get some feedback, right? Because you're you're making moves that you think are best and are going to lead to winning the game. And either you're right on that and you win that game or you're wrong somewhere and your opponent kind of teaches you a lesson. They, they show you like why your ideas weren't good or maybe they just outplay you somewhere. I feel like that kind of feedback is very similar to what you get if you work with the engine, like Jesse was saying, where like you input your own thoughts first, then the engine gives you this instant feedback. Your idea is good, your idea is not good. And then hopefully, hopefully you kind of learn from that over time, you know, making the same mistakes enough or kind of finding a way for that to really stick with you in terms of like learning this, this new idea that you could have done. Okay. I think there there's the question of, are you going to understand how the computer beats you down? Um, and then also my fear with the computer is always that it's like a slippery slope. It's so psychologically satisfying that you just start using it more and more and more. Um, but so 
so there has to be like a really strong case for using it for me because I see such a great danger of people sliding into using it badly, right? It would be like if somebody told you like, you know, if you take this very, very, very tiny amount of cocaine, it can like help you be kind to people all day. And so you're like trying to be kind to people, but it's like, you have to be very careful <laughs> that, that you don't like lose everything right. to, to that. Um, so, but, but, but my question would be at, at what level and to what extent are people able to actually learn from that feedback that the computer gives them, right? Like if I'm rated 600 and I turn on the computer, do I understand how it beats down my idea. If I'm 1200, do I understand it? If I'm 1600, do I understand it? If I'm 1850, do I understand it? Like somewhere along the way, the percentage of the time that you understand why the computer is correcting an idea of yours, that percentage is increasing. Nobody understands it every time, right? Like hmm. you could put a game of yours into the computer right now, Jesse, as a grandmaster, and the computer would suggest some move that you wouldn't understand, right? I mean, that still happens. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, You're not going to understand yeah, every, every like reason why it prefers a move. Mm -hmm. So, and for somebody who's just starting out, they're not going to understand a single one of the computer suggestions pretty much unless it's like made in one. So along the way, that percentage is going from basically zero to at some point, you know, a strong professional grandmaster may be able to interpret correctly 95% of a computer's input and suggestions somewhere along the way that percentage goes to 20% and 40% and 60% and mm -hmm. reaches a point where it might be useful and worth the risk of touching the drug. <laughs> but I honestly think that that percentage is really small until somebody's over like 2000 feet a, and, and I wouldn't recommend it until 2200 feet a, because I think up till that point, it's not like you can't get by without it. And I think the risk is outweighing a fairly small benefit below that point. I understand in 1800, we'll occasionally have the computer point out like a three move tactic they didn't see. And then they'll say, okay, yeah, now I see that. I understand why this doesn't work, but how important was that lesson versus the risk, right? There's a chance they could have found that on their own. And, um, and there's a chance that not finding it wouldn't have made that big a difference in their chest development. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it seems like it's really a question of whether people just learn to use the engine in very like limited and appropriate ways. And I feel like this is something that I've heard most coaches kind of agree with is that it's just like, it has to be done after you think about the position with your own human brain. And even then like just very limited. Cause yeah, I mean the engine, it, it's so easy to misinterpret it and it's so easy to, um, yeah, because there's okay. There's two issues. Number one, you're simply misinterpreting what the engine is saying, so you're not even getting the correct idea about the position. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe it's like, you know, one side played terribly in a strategic sense, but then they just had like a lucky tactic that won the game, and so suddenly you think like, oh, they they must have played well then because they were winning, um, which is definitely not necessarily the case. And then the other danger, of course, is that the computer kind of rots our ability to think for ourselves. So it's just, yeah, a lot of dangers with using the engine. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think um, definitely for me personally, uh, I don't really mention the engine until a student hits around uh, maybe 16 or 1800 over the board rating. And then even then I would say it's very limited. Um, but yeah, if they want to check their, you know, the engine after their game and they've already kind of thought about what they did wrong and 
they just want to see. And they're very like mature about actually understanding what the engine is telling them, then I'm totally fine with it. I think it comes down to like their maturity more than anything. Jesse, how do you have your, your um, students use the engine? Oh, they all do it, dude. They all do it. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, know but I, I, I mean, but they all maybe play bullet too. And in, in what capacity do you want them to use it? At what I want, I want them system? to go over the game first, and then I want to them to input their notes into something like a chess base file. I want uh, for students who aren't ready for chess base. I want chess.com or Chess to create some software that's easily accessible and easily understood for them to do so, to create a PGN file and then have a library of their games. That is the most important chess file that you'll have on your computer. And then only after have they put all that stuff in, can they look at like, say first, before even they look at the computer, see what other people played in the opening and then look at the computer. The computer will totally say everything you've done is wrong. You've got to prepare yourself for that. You will have, you will have formed judgments on the game of, of, of what was right and what was wrong. And what you'll see is like, even though the computer will tell you everything was wrong, there was a lot of moves the computer is going to say that neither you or your opponent was even on your horizon. So in a way they don't matter, right? In a way it really doesn't matter. You can say, Oh, I missed it. And it might seem obvious what the computer shows you, but in fact, it didn't matter, right? The nodes of the, the nodes of the game that were critical will be the ones that you identified in your analysis. That's one of the key things that if you just look at with a computer, you're not going to understand that. You know, you won't be able to see it with your own eyes and you'll never understand structures because you got to understand and dynamics within the structures. You got to do that over the board. The computer's not going to really show you the ideas, the position. Yeah. Well, guys, I'll tell you what, why don't we have these beautiful bullet points? Why don't we just kind of go through them? Yeah. No, I mean, that was just interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's good. It's good. Discussion. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'm happy to uh, ask you guys. A question if you'd like okay sure um yeah i think okay this is one that people are always curious about um how should a typical student of yours if it was up to you divide their time between playing studying which will include going over their games so that, or that could be studying uh, books and other stuff and uh, solving tactics or doing some kind of calculation work Mm -hmm. So if your student, let's say, has like 10 hours or 20 hours, whatever, it's like percentage based, it's going to be very different for everybody. How would mm -hmm. you have them uh, divide it? Uh, OK, I'll go first. It's very simple. Let's say they play a five round tournament first. Like David said, you got to play and it's the competitive uh, environment that's going to hone your skills. You have to have a steady diet of tournaments and Obviously, you can't go over games if you didn't play any games, right? So imagine you played a five-round tournament. For the next five weeks, I would like you to concentrate on nothing except one round a week. And then let's say we do a one lesson a week. Maybe we do more, maybe we do less. But basically, that one lesson a week will concentrate on that one game. And we're going to see what you came up with in that week looking at that one game. We're going to do that for five weeks then there might be some time before your next tournament. Maybe there won't be more time, but you can't go to the next tournament until all those games are done. That's the rule. Then if there's more time, then you get to do whatever you like. And I'll encourage you to do whatever you like. Maybe if you are, you, if you are obsessed with openings as most of them are, fine, 
Let's do some weird chessable stuff. If you're obsessed with the puzzle rush, fine, let's do it. If you wanna go over classic games, even better. I have books for you. If you wanna study some end games, great, let's do it. And a lot of those needs, your interests, let's say, will come out of the analysis. Like when we're doing it, we're gonna talk about all kinds of stuff. And I'm gonna reference things like weaknesses. Uh, get similar positions from what maybe you didn't understand, or maybe some opening suggestions, you know, all that's going to come out of the analysis of the games and whatever time you have left, right? That's just your cherry on top. It's not nearly as important, but it's for your place and my own too, as a player, it's exactly what I'm doing. Your place to uh, explore the game, you know, in whatever way you want to do it. So there's my quick answer. All right, David. Um, so for me, the sort of balance uh, changes depending on where you are, like rating wise, I think at lower ratings, you need to play a lot more at higher ratings. You're going to have to put in some hard work on your games to, to extract lessons from them. Uh, lower rated players are sometimes going to know as soon as they make a move, oops, that was the wrong move. Like they're going to have already done their required analytical work. Like actually while they play the game, they're just going to realize like, oops, I shouldn't have done that. Or, oh, I had this opportunity that I didn't see. And then the next move, they try it. Um, so lower down, it's more playing. Higher up, it's more study um, of your own games and then working on whatever weaknesses that uncovers. Um, solving tactics, I think, until you've solved a, a few thousand tactics, three, 4,000 tactics, something like that. You should be doing 15 minutes a day of like, uh, you know, very short one and two move tactics on um, just building up your, your store, your building blocks. Um, I've got videos about that subject. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think initially playing should be basically like 90% of what you do at the very, very beginning. And that 90% can decline to about, 50% or so by the time you're, you're strong or maybe even a bit below that, right? But in Jesse's example, um, where he says someone plays a five-round tournament and then studies that, those games one a week for five weeks, that player might spend uh, you know, 20 hours playing the games and then spend like 60 hours over the next couple of weeks like studying them. So they might actually be spending more time studying than playing just as a guess. And to me, that would be an appropriate diet for a player in the 1800 plus range. But, um, but I would never ask a player rated 1200 to study a game of theirs for like 10 hours over the course of a week. Um, or I would rarely do that. I mean, it depends on their temperament. So, I mean, anything I say, it depends on the mm -hmm. student's learning style, but but for lower rated players, I wouldn't have them work that hard on one thing. I would have them, you know, try and learn one or two things from their game instead of everything from it and then move on and play another game. Um, so there'd be like a higher percentage of playing because I'm not asking them to study the game as hard. And uh, for higher rated players who finished my 3000 or 4000 like tactical puzzles, I would start having them do sort of like 30 like 20 to 30 minutes of like calculation exercise, um, probably, you know, once or twice or three times a week, depending on their strengths and weaknesses and their interests and, and, and so forth. Right. But, but ultimately I think, you know, once somebody's over 1800, they probably still need to be doing like one or two like calculation sessions, but those are longer. They're not like two move tactics 
that you solve 20 in a row. So they, I mean, it's not like puzzle rush kind of thing. They need to be solving one puzzle that takes them like 20 minutes and maybe solving like a few of those puzzles in a session or maybe two or three sessions in a week. Yeah. David, you said like 15 minutes for tactics a day, but do you think like more is better or 15 minutes just good? I mean, this is like, again, like I've got no data or anything behind it, but, (laughs) but I was told by my teacher, you know, 30 years ago that there was like a limit to how many new tactical puzzles you're going to absorb in a day. And so I don't think that loading up with like four hours of basic patterns on one day and then not doing it for many days is going to be good. It's, I guess it's kind of a guess and I have no proof of it, but that's what I've continued to, to tell everyone else to do as well. Yeah, so I've always felt like consistent is better than cramming it all in. Yeah. So I, I mean, maybe we all agree that missing days is going to be lame. It's like a missed opportunity. Are there some people who could probably just like, you know, chug them down for four hours in a row and get something out of it. Probably. I believe in, you know, like very, very random different kinds of brains all over the place. But to my, unless I know something about somebody, my basic recommendation, yeah, it's just like 15 to 20 minutes and no need to like pound hundreds more. I mean, cause there's so many other things to do, right? You could be playing a game. You could be looking over your game. You could be playing through a collection of games that Botvinnik played with his comments about them. So. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I'm with you guys. I definitely feel like playing is extremely important, and especially at lower levels, playing is just critical, just absolutely critical. Um, and then even at, at higher levels, I would say playing should be something like, I mean, in terms of the hours, then maybe like 30 to 50% of the time or something. I don't know, maybe um, maybe less than that kind of depends. I generally advise uh, tournament players to play like one kind of serious tournament uh, a month. So yeah. back before the pandemic, that would be like a five rounder every month. And ideally like one over the board game a week, which is why I really like these club nights that they often do where you just play like one game Friday night or one game Monday night. I've always found those to be really useful just for keeping uh, someone informed and keeping them playing every week and then kind of studying and training around that. Now for me, in terms of the split, like studying and, um, solving tactics again it really depends on the student for higher level players like the higher you are the more crucial it is to go over your games uh like especially if you're like 16 100 1800 2000 like if you're losing games you're probably losing them for like very specific reasons and so like you could really learn a ton from your your like classical tournament games so if you played an event recently then i I would say like you definitely have to focus on analyzing your games as soon as possible and trying to um get something out of that. Um, If you're not playing that often, because sometimes for me, I'll have like three months of a break between events and you have a lot of time after you've like done analyzing your games and now like you can work or train for a bit. I'm generally been a believer of um, kind of focusing on either working on your calculation or kind of trying to like learn more a bit about the game. So what I often suggest is to make calculation like someone's main goal. Like every day they're gonna do 45 minutes, or I say like at least 30 minutes, again, depends on the student. Some are happy to do an hour, but some consistent amount of time of calculation work every day, they focus on that. And then outside of that, whatever they wanna do in terms of like learning about the game, watching videos, 
reading uh, some book, playing through games, like that's all bonus for me as long as they kind of achieve their main focus. But I don't think most people want to work on their calculation just like nonstop. For me, it's always been like I had a four to six week stretch where I would do like 60 minutes a day, 90 minutes a day, like really hardcore solving. And then after that four to six weeks, I would just be kind of like burned down, like, okay, I've, I've improved my calculation. Let me take a break, go do some other stuff now. So after you've done that, I think it's, then it makes sense to kind of focus on just like learning a little bit more about some topic, either playing through someone's games or reading like a specific book that's going to be useful or maybe like an in-game book. Um, and then not doing as much hardcore calculation work. So doing just like maybe a little bit of tactics, especially if you're playing, keeping yourself warmed up. So I'm basically saying like you kind of focus on one or the other. Playing is definitely a constant. You want to be playing lots of games all the time, especially now that you can play online. It's very nice to just be able to take advantage of that and you can just play games every day. And um, even if you don't analyze, I don't think you have to analyze like every single online game you play, but the more you do, the more helpful that's going to be. Yeah. Okay, I'll ask a question. Cool. All right. And guys, I think that we've got so much on this topic that yeah. there's going to be Dojo Talks Coaching Philosophy Part 2. Yeah. The question yeah. Jesse gives us today will be the last one for today. Good. And good. Uh, and then we'll continue this talk next week, everybody. So, Jesse, what's our last subject for today? Mm, I got a controversial question. And... Uh, I guess I'll go, since I'm asking a question, I get to go last and then we'll sum it up. So we'll start with Kostya. Here comes Kostya. Mm -hmm. Should teachers be active players? Yeah, interesting uh, question. I, my intuition is that no, it's not necessary. I think you could be a really good coach um, without being particularly active yourself. Uh, I believe Dvoretsky quit playing while he was coaching. I don't know if he like 100% quit, but I know he kind of retired from like professional chess to focus on coaching. And uh, also uh, one coach that for me was very useful is this guy, uh, Armenian guy, you, pr you guys probably know, know him, uh, Armin Ambertumian, mm -hmm. who's um, done a lot of coaching for like the US uh, world youth teams. And I did a little bit of training with him. Uh, he stopped playing actively a long time ago, but I feel like he's just one of the best coaches in the U.S. Uh, period. From all like facets that I was kind of mentioning earlier of like what makes a good coach, like I feel like he's very motivational and he like knows how to work with kids and kind of inspire them and and keep it fun for them and make it laugh and keep them interested. Uh, and his uh, like chess knowledge is just like extensively deep. Like he knows everything about all kinds of structures and he knows like what kinds of players and, and, and games you should be studying based on whatever you need to work on. He has like, you know, all the best exercises. He worked with like uh, Dvoretsky. I mean, I think the guy is just like an incredible coach, but doesn't actively play, but he follows his students' games uh, live, you know, and he's like analyzing along with them every single day. So I feel like he keeps his analytical skills at least reasonably sharp. All right, David. Impressive. I actually, Jesse, you said you had a controversial question. I expected us to all say yes on this question. No, <laughs> I told you it'd be controversial. <laughs> I was surprised there, but that's good. Um, that's that, that's good. We we don't want to just agree on everything. Our our show would be would be not that good. I think that a teacher should be an active player. Now, 
it's such a complicated thing that everybody brings different things to the table, right? And listening to everything Kostya said that that Ambar Sumian brings to the table, like I couldn't then be like, yeah, this guy's not a good coach, Kostya, because he doesn't <laughs> play. I, like, there's no way I could fight that. He said that. I mean, that was quite a good, uh, quite a good, you know, advertisement for the fellow. I and I'm convinced by Kostya's advertisement. I'm convinced the guy is a great chess coach. So what I'm going to say is that. Being an active player yourself is just one more thing you can bring to the table as a coach. Like somebody who is an active participant in tournaments is going to have something to offer that Armin Ambartsumian, no matter how great a coach he is, is going to be lacking. And, and Armin's going to bring something that somebody else is lacking, right? He's going to bring something that they don't have, whether it's watching his students play live so he can like follow, like, what are they probably thinking? What's their time usage? that somebody who's playing in their own tournament maybe didn't have the time to do. Maybe he's outworking another chess coach with that. Maybe he's got a better knowledge of what materials there are, right? Like I've gone through a lot of chess materials, but sometimes I'm like maybe slow to remember which one is like, I'm like, oh, my student needs to see like this book, but what was it called, you know, or where do I find, or there's this game I saw once that they should study, but I don't remember who played the game. How do I find the game again? So everybody brings different things, right? So, you could not be an active tournament player and still overall be a better coach than somebody who is an active tournament player. But I think being an active tournament player does help you bring an extra element. So when I am not playing actively, I, I feel, you know, a little bit of like imposter or guilt or something like I can't, like I can't coach properly if I'm not doing it. I've always beat myself up about that when there were these like phases. And when we were restarting chess dojo, it was supposed to coincide with me restarting playing in tournaments, but then everything was like shut down, you know? So, you know, I've played training games with people who win our, our, our dojo mega rapids, you know, and I've organized a, a tournament in our backyard, you know, and I went to Vegas as soon as it was lifted. But I mean, for a year, I, you know, I was teaching chess again without coaching. I felt bad about it. So, um, so I think that being an active player does bring you an advantage as a chess coach, or it's, it is one thing that you provide. Fair. Back to you, Jesse. Yeah, I, I feel pretty strongly about this. I'm, I'm going to put it mostly, though, in personal terms and experience where um, I'm just going to mention two things out of personal experience, but I do think they are you can make them general. And that is first, I have a very vivid memory of going to a cruddy high school and being taught by teachers who didn't really care. And were they pursuing their subject, for example? No, they wanted me to learn something that they were actually doing themselves. Oh man, it still burns me today. After decades, that was, this was in the last millennium, my friends. And it still hurts me. It still hurts me. And um, so that's the first thing. Uh, and I think as a, from a, especially from a chess perspective, the student needs to know that they are sharing a struggle with their teacher, that the teacher knows this struggle and is experiencing it now, the, both the pain and the joy of it. Um, then the other thing I'll say is, of course, I've had, I'm old enough now, I've had various times in my life where for whatever life reasons, uh, I haven't been able to play actively. And by all means, in those times, my uh, love of the game, interest of the game, ability to think about the game, conceptually dream about the game, all of that 
decreased. Now, did that turn me into a terrible teacher? Maybe not a terrible teacher, but definitely not as good as when I am actively studying uh, to play myself. And I think you can't, you can study chess without playing, but it's not going to be the same because you're not going to have your ideas tested. That's the beauty of chess that you will, you have the opportunity to test your ideas that you do not have that opportunity in so many other fields. Like you will be met, there will be a measure placed on how well you did. You can't fool yourself. So yeah, I definitely feel that it's very important. And I think I, I played Armbar Sumi and I don't know, round Robin around 2004 or something. And uh, so he was still playing and do, do I think he's, you know, is he all of a sudden a terrible coach because he doesn't play? No, no. But is he a worse coach because he doesn't play? Yes. Worse than he could be. Let's put it that way. But of course, the guy is incredibly active. That guy's like teaching three million students in the LA area. <laughs> Every Armenian kid in LA is taking lessons with Armin Armbatsumi. The guy has no time. And that's part of the deal, too, about being a coach is, you know, making time for yourself. And that I'd say that's part of my daily struggle is finding the time for myself and my own chess. Yeah. Jesse, I know that, that you're supposed to be the wrap up and I'll let you wrap up again. But I just want to mention one little thing as you were talking yeah. about your experience with your teachers. When I was teaching English in school, if I gave the students a writing prompt, I sat down and wrote the writing prompt with them while they were writing their writing prompts. You know, oh, if I asked them to go home and write a poem, I go home and write a poem. Um, we had an art teacher who for every single art project did like a model of the project herself and a new one each year, even if she'd done it the previous year for a different class, if she, if she was using an assignment again. So I really agree with that. <laughs> David went to one of the fanciest high schools in the country, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Let's do another, let's do this again. We got we'll more do, questions. We'll do part two. Yeah. Cause yeah. I, I think I do, I do disagree with this, but we'll, we'll continue it next week. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, thanks everyone, uh, for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed, uh, the show, uh, make sure to subscribe to the podcast or, uh, you know, whatever, <laughs> do the thing. Uh, all right. And so we'll, we'll end it there.